We're going to be in the Gospel of John, as you've heard, so if you could please turn with me to John chapter 15. We're going to hear from the Lord this morning about abiding, abiding in Christ. And whatever ideas that notion brings up in your mind, I'm praying and hoping that the scriptures would shape our understanding of what it is to abide in him. John chapter 15, we're going to be in verses 1 through 11. I'm just going to read verse 4, and then we'll pray. 15 verse 4, Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. Let's go to the Lord and ask him to bless our time. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you the start of a new year, confessing, Lord, that what we need most, you have already provided in Christ in the new birth. And what we need most, then, is to cling to him and abide in him. So, Lord, with the unfolding of your word this morning, give light. Hide not your commandments from us, O Lord, for we are sojourners on the earth. Feed us this morning with what is needful for our souls. And may you get all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Emily and I, uh, we both grew up here in the valley in Southern California. In my last semester at Master's Seminary, uh, we got married, and then six months later, we zoomed off to Kentucky and lived there for a few years, and then we came back here for a few years, went to Baltimore for a few years, and now we're back here. And in that span, we had moved eight times, and we've only been married 12 years. You know, we're babies by comparison, right? And in all that moving, I got to say it was difficult to cultivate deep and meaningful relationships. You know, we, we, we moved eight times. We didn't change eight churches. I mean, we were in the local churches where we were each time, and we fully were committed in there. But even with being very intentional, even seeking to want to fellowship and be in one another's lives, it's hard to cultivate deep and meaningful relationships. Any relationship worth its salt takes time to cultivate, takes effort to maintain. And it's no different when it comes to our relationship with Jesus. Now the problem is, Jesus isn't here. Now before you run me out of the church, uh, yes, God is omnipresent, Jesus is the God-man, but yet Jesus is at the right hand of God, is he not? He's not here in the same way that my wife is here. So if, I, I can tell, can't I, if things are going well with my wife. I can feel her warm embrace, or I can feel the cold shoulder. What about our relationship with God? How do we have a relationship with God who is not physically here the same way that you and I are here with each other? That's the question that Jesus answers for us this morning from our passage. 
The context of John 15, let me give you just a little context here. I know you have been going through the Gospel of John as Pastor Gary's been preaching it through. But John can be broken up into three major sections. There's 21 chapters. You can think of three Ps. 1 through 12 is the public ministry of Jesus. 13 to 18, 13 to 17 is the private ministry of Jesus to his disciples. And then 19 to 21 is the passion and its aftermath. So public ministry, private ministry, and passion. And here, we're right in the middle of Jesus' private ministry to his disciples. And here, narrative time slows almost to a standstill, focusing on the final hours that Jesus has with his disciples. So John is building in his gospel toward the climactic and central focus of the gospel, which is the passion of Jesus Christ, his glorification. Now consider this, chapters 1 through 12 cover years of Jesus' ministry. Chapters 13 to 17 cover but a few hours. So Jesus is preparing his disciples. John is narrowing the focus and slowing time down for us. Because Jesus here is preparing his disciples for life without him there. That's what he's doing. The relationship with Jesus will take a different turn. Before Jesus says, follow me. And literally they see where he goes and they follow him. But look at chapter 13, verse 1. This is the time of the Passover. And Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Later in chapter 13, Jesus is going to say, where I am going, you cannot come, you cannot follow. And so how will Jesus, his disciples, continue to have a relationship with him if he is leaving them? Well, the key verb in our passage in chapter 15, the whole section is really 1 through 17, the key verb is abide. Abide. This is how they're to have a relationship with him. They are to abide in him. This verb is used 11 times in these verses. 15.4, abide in me and in you. Now, some of your translations may have some different word. You know, the word abide is not, you know, we don't normally use that language anymore, right? We don't say, hey, where, do you, where is your abode? Right? We, don't, we don't use that language. It's a little esoteric. What does abide mean? Well, it literally means to remain, doesn't it? To stay in a place. So keep a finger in John 15. Why don't you turn with me to John 1, 38. The same verb is used here. John chapter 1, verse 38. This is when the disciples first meet Jesus. And they ask him, in verse 38, Rabbi, where are you staying? Same verb there, where are you Abiding. And then they saw where he was abiding, and then they abided with him. They remained with him. And actually, from then on, they stayed with him, didn't they? So they, they physically stayed with him. And this continued for three years. They abided with him for three years. Now, back in John 15, Jesus is commanding them, even as he's leaving them, stay with me. But actually, you notice, he doesn't just say, stay with me, does he? What does he say? Stay in me. 
You see, for three years, they had done ministry together. Surely they had laughed together. They had joys together. They had sorrows together. They saw Jesus up close and personal. And it doesn't get closer than this, right? It doesn't get more intimate than this. But now Jesus is calling them, I think, to an even deeper and even more intimate relationship. For three years, they stayed with him. But now they are called to stay in him. Now, how is that possible? I think when Jesus gives his command to abide in me, I think he has in view his death and his resurrection and the sending of the Spirit. He has in view how he is about to die as the sacrificial lamb and thus open the way for the forgiveness of sins and the sending of the Spirit. And that is why John says later, what Jesus says in John 16, 7, it is to your advantage that I'm going away. I mean, isn't that crazy? Jesus tells them, it's better for you that I leave you? Because if I leave you, then I can send you the Spirit. See, because of the cross, we can have a relationship with God, with Jesus, that is so close and so intimate that the language used is as if one person inhabits the same space as another. Abide in me. And I and you. And we're tempted to think, oh, that was the good old days, the disciples. Oh, if I could be a disciple and see Jesus and be with him. But do you not realize that on this side of the cross, we have unprecedented access to God? According to John 14, 23, through the Holy Spirit, both the Father and the Son make their home with us, in us. And just like Marriage, our relationship with Jesus, it is established, it is forged, he is in us the moment we say, I do. This is union with Christ, the unilateral action by God in which he brings us into union with his son, and thus we are God's. But Jesus gives us as a command, and just like marriage, the relationship then needs to be cultivated. Something we must do, not as a one-time command, but a command continually to obey. This is our communion with God, which ebbs and which flows, our experience of God. And we must give then attention and intention to cultivate this relationship. Now, before we go on, it would be beneficial for us to probe our own hearts a little further this morning. How is your relationship with God this morning? It's appropriate, it's the first of the year. How is your relationship with God this morning? You know, if you're a Christian, the amazing thing is God has not only declared you righteous in his courtroom, he has invited you into his living room. Right? We are justified and we are adopted. J.I. Packer said that we can summarize the New Testament with three words. Adoption through propitiation. The fundamental thing about being a Christian is that we can know God the Father through God the Son. How is your relationship with God this morning? And let me take this one step further. When I ask that question, what are the things going through your mind? How are you answering that question? Like someone asks you, how are things going? How's your walk with the Lord? I mean, how do you answer that question? What kind of measuring sticks do you bring out to start thinking, quantifying, okay, how am I doing? 
I think the most common ways to think, I would imagine, am I reading my Bible? Am I praying? Am I coming to church? Am I serving in church? I would say those are kind of the normal answers that we would give. We tend to float towards these answers, don't we? And actually, that's how we evaluate other people. Well, are they doing their devotionals? Are they coming to church? And are they serving God? And if they're doing those things, we tend to assume, well, they must have a good relationship with God. And this affects, then, how we measure other people, measure ourselves, and disciple others. So it's important we understand and answer this question right. But the thing is, we can't answer the question this way. It's too simplistic. Because there are people who pray, there are people who read, there are people who go to church, and there are people who serve, and yet they do not have a good relationship with God. The Pharisees in the Bible would fit that description very well. Or you can think of head, heart, and hands. Are you a head person, head knowledge person? Perhaps you're thinking the way when someone asks you if you're doing well, you're like, well, I'm reading my Bible. I'm going through my Bible reading plan. I hit Leviticus and I, I even work past that. I'm, I'm good. I'm continuing on. I know doctrine. I can articulate nine points of Calvinism. I know systematic theology. See, head people tend to equate knowledge with godliness. Or are you a heart person? More emotionally attuned. So you think when someone asks you how you're doing with the Lord, you think, well, how am I feeling? Am I feeling happy? When I sing, am I, am I into the music? Am I feeling moved? Are my quiet times filled with emotion and gravitas? People tend, heart people tend to equate feelings with godliness. Are you a hands person? You think, well, I'm serving in the church. I show up in the morning. I serve on AV. I help set up. I help tear down. I execute, I plan, I serve, I sacrifice my time. Hands, people tend to equate acts of service with godliness. Now, we're a combination of some of these three. But I would say these are all inadequate ways to measure. In order to correctly answer this question, how is your relationship with God, we must first ask another question. What does a good relationship with God even look like in the first place? And if you don't understand or answer this prior question correctly and biblically, then we will use the wrong measuring sticks to answer the other question. Now, I'm not starting the year off by telling you, in contradiction to what Gary said, to not read your Bibles, to not pray. That's not what I'm saying. A relationship with God is not less than those things, but it must be more. So here in our passage, I think we are given an answer. Two ways we should, I guess you can say, measure. I don't want to make it this quantifiable thing, but two ways you can think of your relationship with God. I want to give you a framework to better think through your spirituality. And I think John does that by presenting what Jesus tells us here. One, do you depend on Christ? And two... Do you delight in Christ? Do you depend on Christ or in Christ? And do you delight in Christ? So first, look at the first one. Depending on Christ. Look at verse 4 again. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And look at verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. 
He makes it very clear what he's saying, doesn't he? Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And again, in case we're not getting it, for apart from me, you can do nothing. See, Jesus uses the image of a vine, so you can think, I don't know, Napa Valley vineyards, row after row of vines. You think of clusters of grapes that are hanging on branches that are then ultimately connected to the vine. And the fruit comes from the branches, don't they? But when you look closely, you understand that if you disconnect them from the main branch, the main vine, well, then you're disconnecting it from its source of life, its nutrients. What kind of relationship exists between the vine and the branches? What is Jesus saying here? Why does he use this metaphor? What kind of relationship exists between branches and vine? Absolute dependence. That's the kind of relationship. Absolute dependence. Meaning, if we are not connected to Jesus, if we do not daily draw strength from him, then we can do nothing. We can do nothing. You're driving into work. If you're not connected to Christ, nothing good of lasting value can come from your day unless you are connected to Christ, to drawing from Him. Nothing good can come of your marriage, of your parenting, of your relationships, of your family, of your friendships, unless you are connected to the vine. But this raises then the question, what does it mean to depend on Jesus? If you get up in the morning and you say a prayer, does that mean you're hooked up to him and you're ready to go? That's all you need? So I want to make two further statements that clarify this point. I think this passage gives us two further ways to clarify. First, we depend on Jesus, first, by being aware that we need him. Do you know you need him? And secondly, we depend on Jesus when we submit to his word. Well, let's look at this awareness of needing him. Look, look at verse 7. We, we, we get this idea here. We start to develop an idea of what it means by thinking about the command itself. Now, this command is reiterated again and again. Verse 5, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me, kind of reiterating the abide in me in verse 4. Verse 7, again, abide in me and my words abide. The command is issued again and again. And we need to think about this for a moment. We get a clue here. We depend on Christ just theologically thinking out, zooming out now, the same way that our bodies depend on air and water. Right? And you don't think about that, do you? You don't need to think actively each day, I depend on air, I need to breathe. You just do it. But here, Jesus is giving a command, meaning he doesn't want you to just passively acknowledge this. No, 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 there's something active here going on. There's something active here, something more than just happening in the background. I think depending on Jesus begins with knowing that you need him. Awareness that in every area of life, when Jesus calls you to do something, unless you grab his hand and say, you better come with me, nothing good will happen. Nothing good will take place. So imagine if I take the branch of an apple tree, I invite you over to my house, I cut it off and I set it down in the middle of the living room. I'm like, you know what, in a few months, this baby's gonna sprout some apples, we're gonna enjoy some good cider together. I'll invite you back. I mean, you would look at me like I'm a fool. 
Like, what is this guy thinking? He cut off the branch, put it in his living room, and he's waiting for apples to come? Like, what is going on? Do we not do this all the time when we go about our lives, not even actively aware of our need for Christ, not going to him in prayer, not going to his word? Is that not what we are doing each and every day? We need to repeat to ourselves each and every day, I am a branch. I am just a branch. I am a branch. Because often we're tempted to think, I am the vine. Just this morning, I'm tempted to simply pray, because I didn't get good sleep last night. I, I, I went to sleep earlier. You know, we don't stay up anymore for New Year's Eve. And, and I went to sleep earlier, and I think, okay, I'm going to get a good night's rest. I'm going to be good to go, recharge, and ready to preach. And of course, all the fireworks were popping off like crazy, and my neighborhood and people were like loud and for some reason they turned on the music at midnight and it was just crazy it was so loud and I'm tempted to pray this morning God would you would you help me because I'm tired do I need God any less if I'm not tired like is, is my being tired the reason why I need God something is wrong there isn't there you know the problem with us is not that we're weak it's that we think we're strong that we forget of our need for the Lord. I am a vine. I am the true vine, Jesus says. You are the branches. We need to remind ourselves that we are but branches. And that is why he warns us in verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. He is talking about people who look like Christians. I think he has Judas in mind, actually. This is a point in time in which Judas has already gone out. He's speaking to the rest of the disciples. They, they look like a disciple. They quack like a disciple, except they are not actually disciples. Why not? Because they have not humbled themselves to depend on Christ. Now, none of us depend on Jesus perfectly. We all stumble and fall but if you find yourself as a pattern of life not depending on Jesus, you do need to ask yourself whether you have ever depended on him in the first place. Because that is what salvation is. Depending on Jesus fully for the forgiveness of our sins. We are saved by humbly throwing ourselves at the feet of the cross. And we are sustained by continually depending on on him. So this is a serious matter. The outcome of a life unattached to Christ is destruction. This is a warning to those who think that they can be Christians just by doing Christian things. No, unless there is a real, vital relationship of dependence upon Christ. Your end will be judgment and hell. Be warned and repent and come to him. And as a note of encouragement, if this passage concerns you, if it gives, if it gives you cause to worry, if, we're, if you're a Christian or not, well, that warning itself, then, should lead to your repentance. Your caring and your concern is a sign of life and of the Spirit. Then repent and come to Jesus. Depend on Him. Verse 6 is the negative, isn't it? But verse 7 is the positive, further describing this dependent relationship, which gives us our second clarifying statement. Depending on Christ means not just that we know of our need, but that we submit to the word of Christ. Look at verse 7. It tells us what happens if we do abide. But he states it differently. Abide in me, and instead of I in you, he says, my words 
abide in you. So we are to abide in Jesus, and that last half is replaced with the words of Jesus instead of Jesus abiding in us. In this way, I think John is having us see that abiding in Jesus is equated with the words of Christ abiding in us. And I think this means, not simply, that we memorize God's word, like a data hard drive. You know, we just need God's word in our data banks. No, I think this means that we submit to God's word. Because look at what he says. He says, if my words abide in you and you in me, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So what's the logic here? It means not just that you receive God's word, like, oh, let me, let me memorize some scripture, and then I'm going to go out now and ask God for whatever I want. No, no, no. It's, it entails that you receive his word, you see it as wisdom, you embrace its goodness, and you actually pray. It changes how you pray. It changes what you want. It changes what you desire. You actually start praying things that, that his word wants you to pray. And yes, whatever you ask, when you're abiding in him like that, it will be given to you. You submit your whole life to God's word. Usually we associate abiding in Christ, abiding in Christ with something internal to us. I just, I just need to depend on him. But I think what we're doing there is we are just replacing our power source. But we're not adjusting the direction, you see, in our actions. It's like we see Jesus as an engine replacement. It'll make our car go faster. Yeah. I want some of that power. But you're still driving where you want to drive. But abiding in Jesus isn't merely drawing from his strength. It is to go his way and to walk according to his word. It is less like, mm, God, give me a smooth time with my family this holiday season because it's difficult. And it is more like, God, give me humility to say sorry when I wrong my family and Explode in anger because of these long-standing habits that I've had with them. God, help me to be patient with them, to love them. God, give me opportunity to speak your word. It's actually praying for the difficult things, not just for the smooth ride, right? <clears throat> Abiding in Jesus means we submit to him and we obey him. When my children were young, they would look at a power outlet with Curiosity made me nervous and comfortable. And so every time they got close, we would snap their hands and say, no. And we tried to teach them when they're in a parking lot. When I say, come, you come. You don't need to know why, you come. Now, what am I, what am I training them to do? Am I, am I training them in blind obedience? No, no, no. I believe that there's a category of obedience that we all need to have where we simply do because we trust, not because we understand, but because we trust. A lot of times we're sitting in, in church and we're waiting for the word to be preached. And we're like, well, let's see, we'll see how the preacher persuades me today to obey God's word. That's not how the Bible works, brothers and sisters. The Bible is true and we obey it because it's true and because it's good, not because we understand it fully. You see, when you only obey God because you agree with him, that's not dependence. That's not true obedience. It's when we obey God, especially when we don't feel like it, especially when we don't fully understand. That is dependence, isn't it? When we submit to God's word. So let me ask you again, do you depend on God? How's your relationship with God? 
You can think about it internally. Do I know of my need for him? When I'm driving into work, do I realize I need him? Before I go into conversations, do I realize I need him? You know, when I come up to this pulpit and preach in any pulpit, do I know I need him? Am I even aware? Does that drive me then to prayer, to his word, to fellowship, to church? You think internally, and you can externally. Am I obeying him in this clearly revealed word? Perhaps the next step of dependence you need to take is to forgive your friend, not simply to just go home and read your Bible. No, take that step of obedience. Depend on him. And look at verse 8. When we depend on Jesus and bear fruit, what happens? We glorify the Father. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. We must depend on Christ. Secondly, we must delight in Christ. We must delight in Christ. Look at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. I think delighting in Jesus, just like depending on Jesus, identified kind of two clarifying statements. Here, I think delighting in Jesus has two components. Two components. What God has done and what we do. What God has done and what we do. I just want you to look at verse 9 again. I think this is one of the most profound statements of the entire Bible. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. I mean, do you catch that? Do you understand? If there is a love that is pure in this world, if there is a love of loves, a most life-giving, all-satisfying, goodest, if I may use that word, kind of love, it would be the love that the Father has for the Son within the Trinity. And Jesus is saying that he has opened a door for us to come and to experience that kind of love. You have been shown that kind of love. You have been given that kind of love in the love of Jesus Christ. And delighting in Jesus, Jesus is saying, abide in that love. So have I loved you. Abide in my love. Now don't let the past tense fool you here. As I have loved you, because I think he must be also including what he is about to do on the cross. Look at verse 12. This is my commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you. And then he points to death, doesn't he? Greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. See, Jesus is talking about his coming death for them. Because that very night, Jesus will be betrayed and arrested, and like an unblemished, innocent lamb, he will be sacrificed by being nailed to the cross. The Passover lamb died so that the firstborn Every household would not have to. How many firstborns do we have in here? Any firstborns in here? There's got to be more than this. When the angel of death came, firstborn of every household was to die. Why did the firstborn in the Israelite households not die? Just because of God's goodness? Well, yes. But because a lamb died in place of that firstborn. 
Jesus is pointing his disciples to dwell on this greatest act of love. Where the righteous died for the unrighteous. The God-man for sinful man. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus dies in our place. And I want to point out here that God does not tell us to dwell on our own love. But on his love. So as we go into 2023, you might be dwelling on your own love. Because that's what we tend to do. I need to love God more. I need to love other people more. Let me identify all the ways in which I've been deficient this past year. And let me think about ways to improve. Is that not what we do with New Year's resolutions? New Year's resolutions, by nature, points us to look at our deficiencies. And I'm not against New Year's resolutions. But just think about what we're doing here. We focus on our love, don't we? And that can be very depressing. We focus on our faith, don't we? How hard am I obeying? Rather than the object of our faith, Jesus Christ and his obedience and what he has done. So God calls you to dwell on his love, firstly, which means to dwell on Christ and what he has done for you. And I submit to you that the New Year's resolutions kind of mentality, if you only dwell on what you can do, by nature, that will focus on your inadequacies and inevitably lead to burnout and despair, for we can never be enough or do enough. Or if you do well, then it would lead you to pride in your own achievement and in what you can do. And so you sleep better at night, not because God is good, but because you've done pretty well for yourself. Well, friends, I invite you to take up God's invitation for you to rest. Not because you are worthy and he loves you, so feel better about yourself and now you can sleep better, but because you are unworthy and inadequate, and yet Christ went to the cross for you. His love for you is all-sufficient. Don't look to your obedience for peace. Look to his. So to delight in his love, I think, is to rest in what that love makes us, holy and beloved, sons and daughters. For some of you this year, you may need to resolve to do less because you've been doing so much, not out of a sense of fullness, but out of a sense of inadequacy. And God calls you to delight in his love so that you would serve him out of the fullness and sufficiency of who he is for you. So that is what God does for us. We should delight in that. But delighting in God actually does involve what we do. So look at verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. It's very clear, isn't it? This logic is very clear. How do you abide in my love? Well, if you keep my commandments. As I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And I would argue here, there's a specific commandment that probably rises to the top here. Because just a few verses later, verse 12, this is my commandment. The only commandment explicitly identifies in the Gospel of John. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So I do think what he's saying here is, you abide in my love by loving others. This is counterintuitive, isn't it? We usually think of love as a Linear relationship, well, first, I need to, step one, 
go in my prayer closet, be filled up with the love of God, and then step two, after I feel really good about that, I can go out and serve other people. I mean, we, that's, that's kind of how we think about it, isn't it? A linear relationship. But Jesus says it's not actually that simple. It's not that simple. You actually receive and abide in God's love as you give it. There is an experience and a delight in it that can only be had in your obedience to him, to love other people. And perhaps it's, perhaps it's like basketball. You learn, you can learn what a pick and roll is. You can learn what a give and go is. You can watch things online that teach you how to play. You can watch the game, but it's different than enjoying the game, actually playing it. Because when you actually play it, maybe you find out you're really bad and this is a very depressing situation. And you, or where you play, it's just a different experience, right? To do it and to enter into it. You can't grow in Christianity simply by studying. The growth happens when you obey especially when it's hard to obey, because that's when you really need to depend on God and draw from his love. I mean, think of what God's love is. As you come to church, and as you seek to love one another as Christ has loved you, you should be seeking out people that are different than you. You shouldn't just be hanging out with people that are comfortable to hang out with. You shouldn't just be befriending people that you click with. That's not the kind of love that Jesus has for you. You should, after service, think, who's alone? Who's not being talked to? I want to talk to them. I'm here to love. I'm not here just to receive. I'm here to give. And as you do that, it's difficult. And maybe there's some difficult people to love in your life. And as you seek to love them, you start to realize, oh, that's the kind of love God has for me. He loves me not because I'm lovely. He loves me despite of that. And so I think it is a very fascinating thing that our horizontal love for one another somehow sustains our vertical love in God. It involves what we do as well. Look at verse 11. This is all for our joy. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. You see, the world says that joy comes from freedom, Joy comes from independence. Jesus says joy comes from depending and delighting in me. And I may have misled you earlier. This whole passage, actually, is not about abiding. Look at verses 1 through 3. This whole passage, actually, is about bearing fruit and glorifying God. And is actually not about abiding. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. This is the context in which all the abiding comes. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So if you're, if you're doing well, you get pruned. You get, you get, and that can be painful. And so you might think, wait, 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 wait. That's not abiding. Abiding is about me and my comfort and my joy. It's like, no, no, no. It's about God's glory and the fruit that he desires from your life. It's about something so much bigger. It's about what God is doing in this world to give glory for himself. When I got married in 2010, we went on a honeymoon. And I remember waking up the next morning from the honeymoon and looking at my wife. And I remember thinking, oh my goodness, what have I gotten myself into? Because <laughs> I was thinking, I, 
I'm called to love her and to take care of her, and I can't even take care of myself. You know, it, it put all my decisions into a greater perspective. I can't just spend money the way I want to spend. I can't just do whatever I want to do. I need to care for her. My, my, my decisions affect her. Do not make your relationship with God about you, brothers and sisters. It is about God and the glory he is looking to get, the fruit that he would get as you cultivate your relationship with him and become a better husband and father and the blessing that will be to the children and to your wife and to your community. It's about so much more than you. So don't look to abide because you want to feel more restful and comfortable. No, not only that, yes, but because you want to glorify God and honor him. I am the true vine roots us in the story of God because Israel was the vine that failed Jesus is coming to be the vine that succeeded, who will bear fruit for the world. God's purposes march forward still, despite sin. And so how is your relationship with God this morning? How's your Bible reading and prayer? How's your coming to church and serving Him? Yes, those are good things, but in the context of dependence and delight. Do you feel the need to open your Bible because you need him? Not because you're checking off a box and because you're going to share about it with someone else later. Do you feel a need to go to him in prayer because you need him? Simply. Because you need to depend on him. Do you come to church because you want to delight in him and depend on him? So yes, bring out all those old measuring sticks. Those are fine, but in the context of dependence and delight. You remove those things, you might as well just be a Pharisee. You include those things, and it is a joyful and full life. I'm going to close by pointing you to verse 4. Or verse 5, rather. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. There's a promise there, isn't there? If you abide, fruit will come. So you don't need a high-powered job or to have a picture-perfect family or to be married or to be really intelligent to glorify God and to bear fruit. You simply need to abide in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you stand ever ready to receive us with open arms like the father of the prodigal son. You delight in our dependence and delight in you. So I pray, Lord, that as we grow this year together in your word, as we see how great and good and gracious you are, we would further entrust ourselves to you, depend on you, and delight in you. And so bear fruit and glorify your great name. In Jesus' name we pray.